Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name's Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're going to jump right into the messages that we've received from you over the past week. Uh, Rob, if you're ready, I'm going to jump right in with this first message from Jay. Let's do it. Okay. Jay says, Dear Robert and Joe, a medium time listener here, love the show, etc., etc. I was recently listening to your episode on the universal solvent. As is my habit, I was listening while at work. I'm a doctoral candidate in a chemical field, so in this instance, that means I was working in a chemical lab. So color me surprised when I heard you mention piranha solution, uh, which is an aqueous solution of sulfuric acid and hydrogen peroxide. Not because you were wrong, but because piranha has been a normal part of my life, and I never reflected on its peculiar properties and never considered them something special. So when it came up, I immediately walked over to the dedicated piranha workspace in the lab and snapped a picture attached. Rob, I've put it in our document here. Oh, nice. There's no grand point I'm trying to make. I just figured you might get some enjoyment out of seeing a physical representation that some of the exotic topics you discuss are everyday stuff to others. Kind regards... Jay and Jay has attached a picture of what is known as the piranha fume cupboard, an absolutely beautiful cellar door of a pair of words. Yes, and it's it, I should drive home that it does look very everyday. This looks this looks very professional, very normal. It does not look like something that would you would find in a Bond villain layer or anything like that. No, uh, but it's it's neat nonetheless. Just a, a little snapshot of of everyday life involving piranha fume cupboards. <laughs> Yeah, one minute you're getting the groceries, the next minute you're working in the piranha fume cupboard. <laughs> okay, Rob, you want to do this next message from Anna? Yeah, this one uh, is a response to our episode on subterranes. This was a vault episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anna writes, Hi, Robert, Joe, and Seth. I enjoyed your recent vault episode on subterranes. In the episode, you were amusing how it is kind of dumb that so many digging machines are called the mole uh, when there are so many other digging creatures out there. I agree. (laughs) I think a much better name would be the wombat. A wombat is basically a creature that already looks like some kind of industrial device designed by a wacky engineer. It is as if they are trying to make a small tank that can dig, but it also has to be cute and furry. <laughs> it has some extra whack features like a backwards pouch so dirt doesn't get flicked in while digging and cube-shaped poo. Ah, uh, yes. I believe that was a yeah, cube-shaped poo was a, an Ig Nobel award-winning um, topic at one point. That's correct. Uh, They continue, and if you are going to design something to be used in battle, combat already rhymes with wombat. That rhymes and you know it rhymes. (laughs) Thanks for all your great work. It keeps me entertained while I have to scan and date documents. This includes a lot of time removing staples, so I really appreciate something that keeps my mind active. Thanks, Anna. Anna, we are so glad we could enliven your times at the staple mill. I wonder if we could do an episode on the stapler, the invention of the stapler, perhaps. Ooh. Is that one that's, like, actually not interesting? We keep wondering if we're going to, like, come across an invention like this at some point. Um, yeah, I guess the thing is, I know we've looked into some before where they just don't catch our, our fancy. Mm-hmm. But uh, we haven't actually, I don't think we've actively researched the stapler yet. We'll take the stapler challenge. We'll see if we can make it work. <laughs> Uh, 
All right, this next message is from Maya. Maya says, hey, Joe and Robert, love the podcast. I was listening to your episode on the comfort in the box, and your descriptions of anchorites reminded me of the modern phenomenon of hikikomori. Hikikomori has been defined as a state that has become a problem by the late 20s that involves cooping oneself up in one's home and not participating in society for six months or longer, but that does not seem to have another psychological problem as its principal source. Hmm. Oh, okay. So would that mean like it's not necessarily agoraphobia or something else like that that has as a symptom staying at home, but it's just like the the act of staying cooped up at home by itself, I guess? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder. Uh, Anyway, Maya goes on, though not a religiously motivated ascetic lifestyle, there seem to be a lot of similarities, uh, talking about similarities to the Anchoritic tradition. Hope you guys are safe over there, Maya. Rob, do you know anything about this uh, this condition? Um, I don't know. I don't think I've looked at any anything about it before. Um, But it's it's interesting. It uh, I wonder if it how much of it is tied to just sort of modern urban living, you know, and uh, smaller environments that, that people tend to, to, to reside in. And of course, as we kind of mused in, in that episode, I just wonder what impact the global pandemic will have on this sort of thing moving forward, you know. Mm-hmm. So I know it is a is a Japanese term that comes from the Japanese language, uh, but mm-hmm. I, I would assume that this is not just an isolated cultural phenomenon in Japan, but probably describes something that is has a broader reality in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would wonder if this kind of thing becomes more common in the internet age. Where the- yeah, I mean, because that does allow you to be somewhat socially connected uh, and and connected via media to the to the rest of the world while occupying your small place. Yeah, I, I kept thinking about the the anchorite situation, uh, and I was like talking to my wife about it over over vacation, and I was like, yeah, and you're you're just right there in the church walls, and you get to watch church whenever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, like that was your that's your only channel that's your only web page is whatever's going on in church at that given moment mm-hmm. but nowadays uh you know you can just you can be hooked up to all churches at all times i was talking to one of my friends about it who ended up looking into it himself and he said that he came across some examples at least or at least one example where uh the person could leave their cell but only into the church and mm-hmm. that was like a, i guess a variation so normally you'd be totally stuck in the cell and you can just view the church through a window. The other version is there's a door going into the church, but you can't leave the door of the church going outside. Hmm. Is that better or worse? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, of course, so part of the reality is like you're, you're pooping in there, right? So, yeah. um, I don't know. It means you, you occupy the closest bathroom to the church, uh, to, to the, 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 the sanctuary itself. Oh, that's a good point. Know. So in the middle of the sermon, somebody's knocking on your door like, really need to use your pot? (laughs) (laughs) But you can't because it's sacred. Right. All right. Here's another one. This comes to us from Helen on the topic of uh, aniconism. Hello, Robert and Joe. I just finished listening to the first of the Aniconism series, and of course, the second isn't available yet, so this may be premature. But listening to the episode, and particularly hearing about the religious symbol of the conical stone connected to Aphrodite, reminded me about C.S. Lewis's book, Till We Have Faces. This, by the way, this is one I have not read. I I read a fair amount of C.S. Lewis back in the day, but I never read Till We Have Faces. No, I haven't either, so this is new to me. Uh, Helen continues... 
Quote, in this novel, which retells the story of Cupid and Psyche from the perspective of Psyche's sister, that is deeply, deeply limited synopsis. And I apologize to all the literary scholars who wrote their thesis on this book and would object. (laughs) There is a deity known as Ungat, connected, I believe, with Aphrodite, whose icon in her own temple is a great stone. Beyond that, holding the gods and the self is a major theme in the book. Uh, obviously, both in that Psyche was expressly forbidden from looking upon the face of her divine lover and that the main character struggles with her appearance, described from her youth as particularly ugly in direct contrast to the otherworldly beauty of Psyche. When the main character begins acquiring power in her city-state and ultimately becomes queen, she makes a point of covering her face with a veil. Over time, enough people have either forgotten the specifics of her appearance or never seen her face to begin with, and the rumors begin. Is she impossibly beautiful? Is she monstrous? This unknowable mystique becomes central to her image as a queen, while at the same time continuing the themes of what it means to be seen, to be known, and to be either ugly or beautiful. Again, apologies to all literary scholars everywhere. It is an intricate novel, much more so than I have uh, laid out here, and very worthy of bringing up in conversation. Not just because of the seed at the center that is the story of Cupid and Psyche, but also because the lens applied by C.S. Lewis's own faith and perspective as a Christian author known for weaving Christian symbolism into his written works. C. Aslan. Thank you for the great listens, Helen. Oh, thanks, Helen. That sounds really interesting. It's, uh, I've never read it, but it's right up my alley, I bet. I was, I've was i been thinking about C.S. Lewis's work recently because uh, we ended up watching The uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the Four Kids uh, recently. And, uh-huh. and then the, the boy's been reading a couple of them because he, 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 he was interested in reading more uh, from the Narnia series. So he's been reading them, and we've been thinking about uh, watching some more of the films. So... Uh, I've had just some of that stuff idly kicking around my brain, so it's interesting to hear back from a listener regarding uh, the writings of C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I'd be interested to revisit those. I, I read them when I was a kid. I, reflecting on them now, I seem I, I think I would probably enjoy the earlier novels in that series better than the later ones, where the I don't know, it seems like in the later ones maybe the Christian allegories get a little too overt. Yeah, yeah. That that uh, I guess that would be my worry. I never read any of the Narnia books. Um, until I, I did the first one with my, my son, mm-hmm. I ended up reading a lot of Lewis work later on, like the, the space trilogy and so forth. Yeah. Screw tape, the classics. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This next message comes from Ben. Uh, ben writes, hi, Robert and Joe. Thanks for your two recent episodes on Aniconism. As a devout Catholic, it tugged on a lot of thoughts and ideas for me, always a sign of a good episode. Uh, as you went through your rapid-fire list of modern pop culture examples of Aniconism, one example struck me as notably absent from your list, Wilson, the neighbor in the TV show <laughs> Home Improvement. His face was never shown, and the show often went to hilarious lengths to keep it concealed. This maintained the mystery of this character, who was the wise and dependable dispenser of knowledge and reason. I never watched Home Improvement, so I'm only in the vaguest sense aware of this character. But he is—he is supposed to be a normal human, right? Yeah, I think so. He uh, wasn't he like always behind a fence or something? Yeah, I—I I vaguely remember like seeing images of this or clips. Of, yeah, it's—it's—he's it's, behind a fence. He's the neighbor that's talking to uh, uh, what's his name, the main character, Buzz Lightyear, Tim Allen, Tim Allen. Yeah, yeah. and um, and you only ever see the top of his head, like eyes, eyes up is all you ever see. So but but presumably I'm guessing 
there is a rest of his body. It's not like mm-hmm. you know, like a hideous otherworldly being from the uh, you know from the nose down or anything like that. Uh, was famous '90s teen dreamboat Jonathan Taylor Thomas also on that show? I think he was. Yeah. yeah. But who played Wilson? Was Wilson someone of note? Was he the guy from the Munsters, or did he just sound like the guy from the Munsters? He had kind know. of a Fred Ward kind of quality, right? Oh, interesting. Hold on. Not Fred Ward. Who am I thinking of? I apologize to everyone. I'm really jet lagged. So a lot of my associations are coming. Uh, Fred, Fred Gwynn. Gwynn. Yes. Uh, Seth has chimed in and told us I'm thinking of Fred Gwynn, not Fred Ward. Fred Ward is in Trimmers. That's right. Yes, okay. he was in Trimmers. And he was in uh, that, that noir movie with sorcery in it. Oh, oh. Um, Cast a yeah. Deadly Spell. Cast a Deadly Spell. Yes. Ooh, ooh. Is that is that a candidate for Weird House someday? Perhaps I've never seen it, uh, but there, yeah, yeah there, me neither. I'm there are a couple of, of uh, sort of Lovecraftian noir films uh, of uh, of possible interest, and uh, and that's certainly one of them. That's I guess that was like an HBO production, right? Because it was always on HBO streaming. It was like the one constant, uh, one of the the pillars of the whole thing. It's like we paid for this baby, so it's it's always going to be available. <laughs> Uh, oh, anyway, to, sorry, to wrap up Ben's email, Ben also uh, says that he enjoys a bunch of the stuff podcasts uh, that he's listened to to us, to Stuff You Should Know, Stuff You Missed in History Class. Uh, he's listened to Invention, and he's about to start listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You and says, podcasts have helped me get through some truly dark times. So thanks again. Sincerely, Ben. Glad, glad to hear from you, Ben. Thanks for writing in. Yeah, and, and certainly that's a that's a good example with, with Wilson, though. Uh, and I guess also a reminder that that an iconism need not mean anything at all. <laughs> it can just <laughs> yeah. it can just be kind of neat as a visual choice or visual gag. Yeah. But the messages concerning an iconism continue. All right, this one comes to us from Richard. Hi, guys. The Aniconism episodes were utterly fascinating for me and made me think about devotion in a very different light. One thing, however, struck me very quickly, uh, which perhaps was worthy of much closer attention. My perspective is one of a very lapsed Catholic with a degree in Catholic theology. Interesting. In the episodes, you use the term cross and crucifix pretty much interchangeably, when, especially in this context, they have distinct meanings generally, and certainly in the realm of Catholic devotion, both Roman and Eastern. A cross is, in its basic form, two pieces of wood, one at right angles to the other, forming a crossbeam. A crucifix is a cross with, crucially, a representation of crucified Jesus on it, whether a carved figure or a painting, usually expired. You always got to check your expiration dates. Right. On your uh, yeah, but, uh, but I have come across this distinction before. Yeah, the crucifix is specifically the cross with Jesus on it. Yeah. Now, uh, you always see people using a cross against a vampire. Mm-hmm. Can you also use a crucifix against a vampire? One would I, assume, right? I think you can, yeah. I would. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder if that would be more powerful or less. Maybe that actually depends on your, your soteriology. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they continue. The difference is therefore fairly significant when discussing the difference between a physical representation and the divine slash Godhead and an object associated with it. Even on the surface, there's a very obvious representational difference between an inanimate object and a literal representation of the Son of God. 
Books have been written on the topic, but as a basic one-paragraph summary, within Catholic theology, the cross is a representation of God's grace and and of salvation and the resurrection. The cross is empty. The crucifix is, broadly, the cost of salvation, underlying Christ's suffering and the wages of sin. This is one reason why Protestant churches generally eschewed the concept of the crucifix as, to put it very bluntly, and as somewhat of an overgeneralization, Protestant theology generally favors the impact of God's grace and salvation over the impact of the wages of sin. Within both uh, Roman Catholic and Eastern churches, the way crosses and crucifix are venerated is subtly different, and I invite anyone to pay closer attention when visiting churches, especially pre-Reformation ones in Europe and the Levant, when the churches were not specifically trying to distinguish themselves from other Christian uh, denominations. There is a separate discussion to be had about the second diagonal crossbar on Eastern Orthodox crosses and crucifixes, but that is not directly connected to the issue of aniconism. Keep up the good work, helping my brain working on my daily commute to work. Richard. (laughs) That's some work, Richard. Uh, yeah, well, th- this is interesting. Thanks for getting in touch. I feel like this is something that was on the tip of my tongue in the episode, but maybe it just never came up is the difference between the, uh, the, the occupied cross with Jesus on it represented figuratively versus the, the empty cross just as an inanimate symbol. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, thanks for this explanation. I, I think you're generally on the mark about the, the trends in the theological implications of the two different symbols. All right, this next message is in response to our episodes about beans, and it comes from Wendy in China. Wendy says, Hello, Robert and Joe. Love the podcast. Longtime listener, but I'm a little behind recently and had just heard the episodes about beans. When I heard about the uh, yard-long beans, and you said that you didn't know how to eat them, I instantly knew I had to write to you. I haven't caught up to date still, so please excuse me if anyone had already mentioned it. In most of the regional cuisines of China, the long beans are for frying, for example, Sichuan-style spicy fry with dry red-hot pepper, or simply fried with some pork meat like how you can fry most vegetables with. But my favorite way of preparing the yard-long beans is definitely the fermented sour yard-long beans, called pickled Chinese long beans. Um, oh, and I'm, I'm going to try the pronunciation on this. Suan Doujiao. Uh, I, I hope that's close. And she uh, links a video uh, showing how these are being prepared. Uh, And in describing the video, Wendy says she's using the shorter kind of beans, but most uh, Chinese use the longer kind. There are also some different ways to ferment. Some use water, salt, and bran, seasoning the whole beans. Some cut them up before and only put salt without water. This results in some differences in taste and texture. I've also heard that if you want the beans to remain crunchy after being pickled, Pick the beans young, and they will be better than the fully ripe ones. Uh, You know, I love fermented vegetables, so this sounds right up my alley. I don't think I've had this before, but now I've got to try it out. Maybe I can find it at a... I wonder, is this this specifically a Sichuan pickled vegetable, or is this... uh, I guess she doesn't say. Anyway, Wendy goes on. However you ferment it, it is great to cook with it with minced meat after being cut into smaller pieces. Or where I'm from, the southwest regions of China, like Guangxi, Guizhou, or Hunan province, you simply put the cut-up beans in rice noodles as an add-on. It's made popular nationally by the famous rice noodle dish called Luo Sifen, or uh, which means the Luzhou River Snails Rice Noodle. Whoa, that sounds mm. cool. 
It's a very common ingredient in Guangxi cuisine and an important element in uh, Guilin rice noodle too. People also uh, cut up and fry the fermented beans with some oil and red pepper. It's great as a small dish to eat uh, with rice or porridge. Really like the show and looking forward to learning more interesting facts, theories, history, and stories, etc. All good stuff. Best, Wendy. Awesome. Well, yeah, I always love to hear from uh, from our listeners in China. Uh, and indeed, I was looking at the the video here. These look these look great. You know, very vibrant uh, looking, and uh, it's also uh, you know vegan recipe, obviously. Yeah. All right. This one comes to us from Steve titled Invention of Beds. Uh, Hi, all. Thanks for the podcast. I only discovered it a couple of months ago and I've been binging. I just listened to your invention episode on beds and you were discussing sleep patterns. I'm English, but for a few years in the early aughts, I lived in uh, Seville, south of Spain, down by Morocco. In the summer, in fact, most of the year, the middle part of the day is so crazy hot that it requires a siesta. This means that, at least then, I don't know what it's like now, but I can't imagine it's changed, the entire city would shut down between maybe 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. After siesta, you'd maybe go back to work for a few hours and do social activities outdoors in the evenings when it was cooler. 10 p.m. was a normal time to meet friends for a beer, getting to bed maybe at 3 a.m., maybe sleeping five hours, then getting up for work. You'd supplement this with three-hour siestas in the afternoon. During siesta time, it's too hot to do anything but sleep, have sex, drink somewhere shady, or go to church. Uh, I'm not religious, but those ancient, beautiful churches are always pleasingly cool inside. I was working as an English teacher, and my workday was split to allow for siesta and associated travel time. The, d- the same was true for most workers. During siesta, shops shut, the city was silent. The saying was, only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the noonday sun. This Englishman de- de- declined to do so, but it took a while to adjust to this pattern of sleeping a few hours in the afternoon and a few more at night. I love that. Only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. Wonderful. I, I'd, I'd heard that before, but I, it, it, I'd never heard a, an anecdote where it directly applied. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, anyway, they, they continue. Uh, somehow, when, I, when I'd made the adjustment, I felt it was a healthier way to sleep. The fact that I was able to adjust to a different routine of sleeping suggests to me that perhaps our Western pattern of sleeping for a long stretch during the night is not biologically imperative, but entirely cultural. Makes me wonder if there might be even better ways to manage our need for sleep. I know shift workers who struggle with night shifts and rotating shifts. The demands of capitalism are often inimical to healthy sleep, but a short sleep and a nap later seem to work well. Perhaps there are other possibilities not yet explored. Anyway, just wanted to share my experience. Thanks for the podcast. Keep them coming. Oh, and I'm loving the cinema ones, too. Cheers, Steve. Yeah, very interesting. Thanks, Steve. I, I've definitely read about siesta culture, in, um, specifically in Spain, but I wonder, maybe, are there other parts of uh, the Mediterranean where that's more common? Um, mm, maybe so. Uh, I would love to hear about regional, uh, different regional approaches to the, the same problem, you know? Yeah. I seem to recall when I visited Italy that it... I don't know if it had to do with a, a siesta culture, but I do recall shops and places being closed in the middle of the day a lot. But mm-hmm. maybe that's a coincidence. Yeah. Maybe know. that's just lunch break. I don't know. <laughs> now, I know in terms of different sleeping patterns, I think we've we've touched on this before, and I've seen this uh, this uh, discussed multiple places. The idea that maybe we're not supposed to sleep, uh, we're not really meant to sleep all the way through the night in one giant chunk. You know, mm-hmm. that at the very least, there's supposed to be a period in which we wake up and do other things and then return to, to slumber. Um, 
which I find myself doing that sometimes, you know, where it's like you, you sleep and you wake up and you can't sleep for a little bit. So you watch the first half hour of uh, the return of swamp thing and uh-huh. then you go back to sleep. This seems to be where a lot of our uh, our Weird House Cinema ideas come from. It's like uh, often lately it seems like we're talking and you're like, well, yeah, you know, I woke up at 2 a.m. and I watched Trancers and, and <laughs> now here we are. Yeah, I mean, if, if for me anyway, it's like I wake up at a time like that. My brain is not functioning well enough to do anything else, including like look at a video game or whatnot. But mm-hmm. watching a, a you know a weird movie, generally that's about the right speed for the, the half-asleep brain. And we're all thankful for it. Well, speaking of weird movies, uh, do we have some Weird House Cinema-specific listener mail to look at here? Yeah, we got a couple in the cinema front. One comes from Amy. Amy uh, jumps into the ongoing Sean Connery Scottish accent in Highlander saga, uh, which (laughs) has maybe we've now gotten more listener mail about than anything else. Um, Amy says, hi, all. The ongoing interest in Sean Connery's Scottish accent in Highlander made me remember the audio component from my high school Russian language class. We used a textbook called Russian for Everybody, and I can't remember if the audio was part of the book or not. At any rate, I remember watching videos of a Russian woman who had evidently learned English in the southern U.S. as she had a strange combination of Russian and southern accents. She pronounced words with a distinct Distinct Southern drawl. Huh. Okay, so maybe this informs the question of uh, whether whether you would have a Scottish accent if you learned English in Scotland. Hmm. You know, I feel like I've I've heard. Uh, I didn't think about this in context of, of Sean Connery's accent, uh, but I think I had heard accounts of people before who had acquired a foreign language with certain accents in play, mm-hmm. and then like people pick up on it. Uh, like I think I'd heard about something of, of this nature with uh, someone who had learned, uh, I can't remember if it was Japanese or Chinese, but then when they went there, uh, went to, uh, to China or Japan, whichever the case was, like people picked up on the fact that they had a strange um, you know, regional accent for someone who was clearly not from that region. Amy's message continues, also on the subject of the Punish the Machine episodes. Whenever an electronic device isn't working, especially on the occasions when printers don't work in my job, my first thought is to unplug it and make it think about what it's done. <laughs> Thanks for reading, Amy. I like that because it, it you know, the it, the weird anthropomorphic uh, reasoning there sort of maps on to the actual best first step in troubleshooting usually, which is turn it off and turn it back on. Yeah, but yeah, should teach it a lesson. It knows what it did. Yeah. All right. Uh, we have another listener mail here related to uh, Weird House Cinema. This one comes to us via the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module Facebook group, which is which is out there. You can you can join. There are listeners who engage in discussions there about uh, anything publishing in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. And Ed had this to say regarding Hanuman versus Seven Ultraman. Hi, Robert and Joe. As a Thai who was born in the late 70s, I grew up watching this movie several times. I am surprised you guys could find and discuss it in in deep detail, despite the poor translation. You have brought my nostalgic memory back today. Thank you, Ed. Oh, that just warms my heart. (laughs) Yeah, it was was great great to hear from uh, from someone uh, who observed who watched this film uh you know back back in the day uh you know as as a part of thai culture you know it's like because because that 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 was part of my experience was watching this and wondering what that would be like you know what Mm -hmm. is it like i i I guess in general i love to hear stories like that where the new 
you know, weird film for, for us often, especially as a, you know, as a, as an American viewer Mm -hmm. is to someone else, just like a part of the fabric of their childhood. Um, right. Like uh, the Jack Frost film is a, is a great example of this um, th- that we've you know discussed in passing on the show before. The Russo Finnish movie, yeah, yeah. And I, I remember meeting um, uh, somebody from the Czech Republic who was like, "Oh yeah, they they showed this every Christmas. This was our Christmas movie, you know." And and so it's it. I love I love uh, stories like that. Yeah, and it also makes you reflect on how there are lots of things that you watched when you were a child, and because you were exposed to them often and early, they seem utterly mundane or normal to you. But if somebody who didn't have that exposure, like cultural or just exposure early in their life, came across them, they might seem mm-hmm. tremendously weird to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, certainly there are a lot of tremendously weird films that, that I feel like we, we all watched growing up, but they're just a part of the fabric of our childhood. Yeah. Uh, so we, we, we often don't realize how, how, how strange they are. Like sometimes it might be interesting to get a, a uh, you know, a Russian adult today or a Thai adult today to lo- watch the Disney movies that we saw as a kid and say, like, what, what does this look like to you? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. If there's anybody out there who can speak to that, um, you know, are you someone who was not exposed to sort of a mess American and or Western uh, children's films until much later? Uh-huh. And then in and then in doing so, what was that like? I yeah. mean, we don't even have to go like West. Like you, you see huge differences between people who grew up um you know watching american television versus british television mm-hmm. um you know things that are just like common touchstones like there's apparently a film uh, or a tv series on it, i can't remember which called stick of the dump that is a that is not is. something americans know about for the most part i think but but for and for many british listeners like yeah there's this story about a kid who meets a neanderthal that lives in the garbage dump and that's just a part of, of what you grow up with whereas the, you know i i hear that as a as a grown person i'm like that just sounds really weird why would you rear a child on such a strange concept yeah even considering how you know because of shared language and all that how close british and american culture are like how weird doctor who is to americans who encounter it for the first time but like you know british kids who grew up watching it it seems very mundane and normal to them yeah and i wonder how much of this we're we're getting away from or we're getting into weirder areas i guess where parents have more power to uh to curate what their child what weird things their child are are into you know it's not Mm -hmm. just whatever's on television in some cases it's like we're cherry picking like the the strangest and most beloved things from our past and inflicting them on the children yeah that i i wonder exactly how best to frame it but that is something that could be an interesting episode in some way i don't know what angle to approach it really but like the phenomenon of okay so you're an adult who remembers say the dark crystal from your childhood or something mm-hmm. like that is something that was absolutely magical that you just loved and you still have all these fond nostalgic memories for, and you see the beauty of it and you want to make your kid love it too. What if they don't, what if you show it to them and they just don't get it? Do you know what I mean? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I, I know from experience what that's like and you just have to, you know, I guess you just have to roll with it and realize, you know, they're not going to love everything. If they love, if they take a shining to, you know, half the stuff that, that you loved growing up, then you're, mm. you're lucky that you get to experience it again. And if they're not into it, well, then you just keep that just for you. You did, you did uh, get lucky with the dark crystal though, right? Yeah. But that one was, that one was hard. I the dark crystal is not one that he seems jazzed to necessarily watch again because it mm-hmm. is kind of dark and serious in tone. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other things that I either haven't been able to convince him to, to give a shot to, um, 
you know, or I just, maybe I waited too long or maybe it's not time yet. You know, it's timing is everything. And every kid's different, especially when you get into some of the, you know, the darker uh, bits of media, you know, like when is the right time to show a child the never ending story? You know, you don't want to go too early. You don't want to go too late. I don't know. There's like a sweet spot, but you want them, you still want them to feel it. That's the other weird thing about exposing these, these, these types of, of properties to our kids. It's like, there's part of this weird voyeuristic um, thing there where we want to, we're experiencing it again through them, Mm -hmm. but we're ever mindful. Like, what are they going to, how are they going to react when they find out that uh, the Darth Vader is Luke's father? You know, Mm -hmm. how are they going to react when that, uh, when, when the, when Atreyu's horse sinks into the, the, the swamp of despair, never ending story, you know, Um, even, you know, even though we, we don't want them to hurt or anything like that, but Mm -hmm. you know, we, it's like we, we're watching them engage in the power of story and the power of myth. And, um, and part of it is, is, is anticipating engaging their reaction. Yeah. Watching them watch it, yeah. but not it, not Stephen King's it way too. <laughs> With my kid, I don't know. I mean, I know kids that are already super in, into Pennywise the clown that are, um, that are about his age. So who knows? It varies from child to child. Uh, what's the right age for the Tommy knockers? Ooh, I don't know. Uh, I never made it through the Tommy Knockers. <laughs> I think they're making it again, though, right? Isn't there another version well, of Tommy Knockers? Surely Knockers not. They, they've like run that dry on Stephen King material to adapt. They're going into Tommy Knockers. I mean, I think just everything gets snatched up, right? Uh, I don't know. The, the weird thing with with King properties is, yeah, it seems like there's there's a lot of competition to to make and remake all the novels, but there's still there's so many great short stories that haven't really been adapted outside of the you know the agreement that he has uh what is it the the dollar club where anybody can any film student can make a stephen king adaptation as a, as a student film uh that you know he had so many great weird short stories that i feel like could be revisited oh yeah totally anyway i guess we should probably wrap it up yeah we're gonna go ahead and close out the mail for this episode of stuff to blow your mind listener mail but right in because we'll be doing it again next monday we'd love to hear your response to topics we covered in this episode uh response to uh recent or old stuff to blow your mind episodes episodes of weird house cinema it's all fair game so just keep it coming yeah send them on in stuff the mailbag for us yep you can find us at uh Ooh, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find Stuff to Blow Your Mind. The Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, that's where we put it all out. Just rate, review, and subscribe if you have the chance. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.